0: Yo, welcome to another podcast. Thanks for listening this week. Uh, Historian Fred Belts is going to be on. Uh, Specifically, Oak Hill Country Club historian Fred Belts. Fred is uh, going to share with us how Oak Hill rose to prominence in Rochester. A little bit about the history of golf in Rochester in general, but specifically... Uh, of, of Oak Hill. And and how did Oak Hill become Oak Hill? You know, how did it become the elite club? Because at one time, I think he'll tell us, I think at one time the entry fee to Oak Hill was like $25 or something like early on. So hey, it's an interesting story. And obviously that's what you're going to hear in just a little while. Uh, I will monologue up front a tiny bit here as I have been doing. Speaking of the format of this podcast, I'm gonna let you in on a little something. Um, the The podcast numbers on, uh, have been they've been decent. I mean, I've given them out before. I'm not trying to keep secrets or anything. I've had some episodes break the 3,000 mark. Most of them are, are in the 800 to 1,200 mark. And I've had some fall below 800. But what I have been finding, especially after last week with Mark and Shane from the Gentleman's Club, the uh, other times that I've spoken about radio, uh, and food being the other thing, I have found... That if the topic of my podcast is either food related or media, mostly radio related, it uh, it kind of blows up, you know. And when I say blows up, I mean not you know it doesn't blow up, blow up, but you know I get a couple thousand clicks. Now I remember from my days in actual radio what the segments we used to post on demand, aka our podcast, were getting and this podcast gets better numbers than those segments used to get now i don't know that that's apples to apples because you have to figure many people are hearing those shows on the radio on an actual broadcast and that might be why they don't do such strong uh, online numbers podcast numbers that that could be so i don't i don't again i don't know that that's like apples to apples comparison uh, certainly not trying to say, hey, you know, I'm more popular than people that are on the radio. No, not what I'm trying to say at all. Just saying the numbers are strong, strong enough, and uh, they are strongest. This is what I love about doing a podcast: is you can see this kind of stuff. But they are strongest when I'm talking about either food, because I do have a uh, a love for the food industry and a lot of connections in the industry, and I'm able to kind of go behind the scenes a little bit more. Um, and then also when I talk about radio, those are the strongest numbers. It's interesting being able to see that specific of numbers for this thing, because, uh, you know, in radio, quite frankly, there was always just a lot of smoke and mirrors surrounding the question of how many people are actually listening. You know, there's ratings. Don't get me wrong. There's ratings. But the ratings, if you actually look into them, are, are a, a sort of a they're a number that is based on a small sample size of the general population. And technically, not even scientifically accurate because, uh, as I remember from my college days, in order to get a, a scientifically accurate uh, result, you would need to have at least five percent of the population surveyed, and they they rarely get that many. So, therefore, whatever the you know whatever the number is, it's just not ever going to be quite on that. You know, it's not going to be the number's not going to be big enough, is what I'm trying to say to get a truly accurate number. Anyway, uh, it's been. You know, humbling to see real numbers now, doing a podcast. You know, you get to see real numbers. You get to see how many people are actually listening. When do they tune out? That's another one. You know, when does somebody, like, listen for three minutes and tune out? That's another interesting one. Uh, all those numbers, that would be, uh, boy, if, if real radio ever had to deal with that, that would be, uh, I'll, again, I'll use the word humbling um, many radio stations, by the way, do deal with that in bigger markets. It's called a PPM market, a personal people meter market, purple people eater market. Uh, yeah, the markets that are. But Rochester's not like that. Our Rochester's still a, what's called a diary market, and therefore ratings are very much so based on um, write ins, you know, people just essentially voting for their favorite radio show. Anyway, uh, so what I'm getting around to here is I'm considering. And I want your feedback on this. I'm considering narrowing the topics on this podcast down to probably mostly food and maybe some radio. Uh, I think it'll get harder and harder for me to do radio topics because, you know, the further I am removed from my career in radio, it's going to just I'd be more and more out of touch. So I think over time... It will be difficult. You know, I can't imagine a couple of years from now I'm going to be able to give a, an accurate depiction of what I think of the radio landscape. I, I'd imagine that's going to kind of go away over time. So uh, we'll see. You know, we'll see. We'll see. Um, by the way, if you hear some background noise, I'm sitting in the East Ave Wegmans parking lot. It's Saturday night, August 15th, 10.08 p.m. Why am I here? It's because uh, I just came from a get-together at my father-in-law's house where I was asked if I'm doing sauce tomorrow. And I am, of course. I'm always doing sauce on Sundays. And uh, then I was told that uh, everyone was coming over. (laughs) It's it's like I had like a group of about uh, six people announce that they're coming over for sauce tomorrow. So I said, yeah, that's great. I love it because I'm Italian. I have to enjoy people coming over. But then I also realized, oh, shit, I don't have enough meatballs. Uh, Or... Enough, uh, uh, I call it the auxiliary meat, the random like pork chops and short ribs that I throw in there and stuff. So anyway, I'm at Wegmans just picking up some like emergency meat for tomorrow. I'm going to throw together one last little batch of meatballs before I go to bed tonight. Um, Yeah, so I don't know. I would be interested to know what you think about me maybe narrowing this thing down to being about, you know, food for the most part. And uh, probably do, you know, radio, talk, radio speculation. At some point, I'm, gonna, I'm going to release those 19 minutes that I did with Mark and Shane. I don't know for sure if I'll release those exact 19 minutes or if I'll just re-record it where I tell the story. But you know, people are dying to know the true story behind my leaving. Look, I've already kind of opened up about this. These specific things that happened that pissed me off at my old radio station, at my old job. Those are the only things I haven't put out there. I've put out the generic answer of, look, I was very happy doing what I was doing with the sauce. I was loving that. I was finding it to be a higher high than anything I was doing in radio. That included when I had the opportunity to host shows. Uh, and so I knew that that was probably, you know, the uh, the hotter pot, if you will. If I, I always thought of it. I had two pots kind of boiling on the stove. One would boil over at some point and the other may cool down. Well, the one boiled over, the sauce, you know, it got me me to the point where I had this amazing opportunity to do what I'm doing now. But at the same time, the other pot kind of started to dwindle and my uh, disenchantment with radio became very real and it was caused, I I believe, uh, it was caused. It wasn't something that only happened inside me. I think there was a specific few things that happened that made me truly say, Uh, you know, I'm, I'm done with this. I, I I can't be here anymore. This is just, so anyway, well, I'll tell that story eventually. I, I promise. I, I, you know, I'm on, I'm on legal advice to wait until what was going to be the end of my contract, which was October 15th, by the way. Uh, other stories I'll tell you is, uh, I have been, and I want to keep these somewhat, I don't know to what extent I should talk about these. I've been approached by them. That's the other thing people keep asking me that I've never attacked on the podcast. And I'm not ready to tell the story yet. But, yes, I have had a meeting with Intercom. Uh, And, yes, I have had a meeting with yet another group. And um, I think you'd be interested to hear the story because I'll just tell you this, and and I will tell the story eventually. But it wasn't a straight-up Hey, we'd like to hire you to do a radio show. That wasn't what the meeting was at all. It was uh, very, it was different. It was kind of a kind of not. To be honest with you, it took me by surprise. Not what I thought they were going to ask me about. So uh, anyway, before we get to the interview with Fred, I wanted to talk about a few things. Um, radio wise, you know, after that podcast I did last week, well, I felt pretty bad. You know, talking about Kobe who works on ninety four the zone right now. Uh, my old coworker, I liked Kobe a lot, and and I boy, I was I don't know if you could tell, but during that podcast when Mark and Shane said that th- their replacement was Kobe, and I figured out that it was the Kobe that I was thinking of, I was very my my butthole tightened very very fast. I was like, oh boy, oh no, because I knew they wanted to rip on him, and I was like, no, Kobe's kind of my boy. But at the same time, I love Mark and Shane, and and at the same time that I think Kobe's great and I love Kobe, I'm also thinking like, boy, the zone really shouldn't have moved Mark and Shane, you know, or if they were gonna move him somewhere, move him to mornings. Uh, but anyway, I that was just that was one thing. So I felt dead. was I felt bad about Kobe. And then also, I don't know if you've been on the Zone's Facebook page lately, but he's getting crushed. The Zone's Facebook page is mostly just listeners commenting on every post about missing Mark and Shane. Uh the other thing I wanna say is people have been reaching out to me like crazy about the big show with Earl, David Reed, Pat, and Megan. Saying, what do you think? Have you been listening? What do you think? Have you been listening? What do you think? Have you been listening? Look, I, Earl David Reed is a giant personality. That guy's got a, a more talent in his pinky finger than I got in my whole body. Than most people have in their whole body. And Megan and Pat are, look, they're, they're, they're friends. You know, they're people I think very highly of. I like Megan and Pat. I, I really have high opinions of all of them. Uh, I Look, I also have heard and have seen and been shown and screenshotted and sent to me and have heard you know that, that there's some people who don't love the show so far and here's what i'll tell you you wouldn't have loved my show either two weeks in probably would have taken me a while to click and figure out what i was doing the the, the you know they're going to cl- they'll click they'll click or they'll figure it out something will happen they'll be fine i listen to that show and i hear a ton of talent in the room And, uh, you know, I hear a show that, yeah, they just have to build some chemistry. They've been together for two weeks. Give them a break. The fuck? People are ready to write them off after two weeks. You know, Jesus, if you got to, uh, again, like I told you, if I had never left radio and I'd been given that afternoon show, I guarantee you two weeks in people would be saying the same exact thing about whatever show I would have put on. They would have been saying this sucks. It's no good. You got to give it. A year. I know it's a long time, but you got to give it a year. You got to let it breathe. Give it a year. Let them get their feet on it. Let them figure out who they are. I'll be honest with you. I doubt if they even know yet exactly what their roles are on that show. It'll all flesh itself out. Give it some time. Everybody's so fast to jump on shit and to be like, it sucks. Get rid of it. They're not getting rid of it. It's two weeks. It's two weeks. One last radio note, some upcoming guests on the uh, podcast here. Jeremy Newman, former morning show host of The Bee, is going to join me on this podcast in the near future. Now, Jeremy and I did speak, and he did tell me that he's not interested in shitting on his old job or his old company much, uh, or at all, I should say, in fairness at all. And so I don't want to you know, misrepresent what that podcast is going to be about. It's not going to be two ex-radio guys griping about their companies uh, I will respect Jeremy's wishes. Um, I, You know, I feel like I have to ask him to what extent he's willing to or comfortable talking about it, but I, I'm not going to push him any further than just asking him what he's comfortable talking about the way it ended. That, that'll be it. Other than that, I'm just interested in hearing about the guy's life, you know, who he is, what his past is like, how he got into radio to begin with. A lot of those kind of questions, you know, what were some of his good memories? What did he love? What did he not so much love? And and what does the future hold? What's he doing now, too? You know, his his listeners want to hear from him. And so, and he's very he was a very popular radio host in this town. And I'll be interested to, to hear what Jeremy... Now, I haven't interviewed him yet. The interview as we speak has not yet been recorded, so we'll see what happens. Anything can happen until it's actually in the can, but uh, we'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to that, but like I said, don't expect it to be you know, a tell-all or anything like that. Jeremy uh, did quite a bit of that on his Facebook page in the days following his release anyway, so if you're really interested to see that, you can probably do that. Otherwise, I'm, I'm just looking forward to having a conversation with the guy. i never met him face-to-face, so that'll be good. A um, couple other interviews. I've got Peels on Wheels coming up. I don't know if you know this, but there's a pizza revolution going on in this city right now. Doughboys rock and Peels on Wheels are setting the town on fire with their mobile pizzerias. Also, Steph Hanna, uh, a.k.a. Sip and Savor, one of my absolute favorite foodie influencers here in Rochester. She's going to join me in the near future uh, as well. Um, Two things before we get to the Fred Belts interview. Off the topic of radio, one, the post office. Boy, you can't even joke. You can't even joke in 2020. Oh, God. So, you know, this whole thing that's been going on with Trump, the post office, I'm not going to go into the actual story. But when I saw the post office was, like, trending and I figured out why, I wrote a joke post about how I'm not a fan of the post office because they're unfair. Because, you know, when I put a check in the mail, tends to get to the uh, recipient within a day or two. But when other people put a check in the mail, to me, It could be weeks till I see the check. And it's a joke. It's a joke about how people will tell you the check is in the mail. You know, it's one of the famous, like, the number one lie in business is the check is in the mail. Right? The check is in the mail. It's the number one lie told. So it was a joke. And, of course, I had to hide some comments from my Facebook post because people can't handle it. They can't handle it. (sighs) The other thing. Last thing, I swear, before the interview is uh, two recommendations, documentary-style recommendations, one Netflix and one podcast. The, the, The Netflix is almost embarrassing for me to recommend just because I think I'm the last guy in the world to see it. But just in case you haven't yet seen The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, it is so good. I do not know why. It took me a couple of months to watch this thing because I just finished it yesterday and it is so good. As somebody who grew up hating Michael Jordan, remember, Cleveland Cavaliers fan, he broke our hearts a couple times. As somebody who grew up hating Michael Jordan, uh, this documentary made me love him. It did. It doesn't always shine him in the kindest light either, you know? Uh, and the other one is uh, a podcast called The Dream Podcast. And it's a podcast. There's two seasons out now, and I'm just about to wrap up season one. It's about the uh, pyramid scheme industry, or as they call it, the multi-level marketing. Yeah, that's what it's called. Multi-level marketing industry. And kind of an inside look at this multi-level marketing. Because I'm sure you've seen on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, I'm sure you've seen your friends. Everyone's got some friends that are, you know... Selling shampoo or oils or exercise routines or something. A lot of those things are very much so borderline pyramid schemes. And so it's a documentary that kind of does a deep dive on pyramid schemes. Really, really interesting. Okay, I've blabbed enough. Let me go inside to Willis Wegmans and buy some meatballs. In the meantime, enjoy my interview uh, recorded at Oak Hill in the trophy room at Oak Hill, by the way. And we'll describe what that means. It is Oak Hill Country Club historian... Fred Belts. Enjoy. Fred, I got my I got my butt kicked as a uh, business owner this week. Uh, the uh, a kettle went down, <laughs> and then after a kettle went down, a kid who I was sort of depending on, he was sort of the anchor of the second shift, of course, called off, <laughs> and of course, so that's what I'm. So I'm dealing with a professional nightmare today. So, Good. well, I appreciate Good. you squeezing me in, though. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. You're this welcome. is great. This is Fred Beltz. He's the historian here at Oak Hill. How long you been the historian here? Um.
1: Fifteen years,
0: fifteen. So yeah. you're starting to like be part of the history at this point.
1: Whoa, yeah. I try to avoid that, but <laughs> sure.
0: Yeah, sure. Fred. Uh, let's. We're going to talk about the whole thing. We're going to go mm-hmm. back in time and talk about Oak Hill. Uh, really, what I find interesting is stories like Oak Hill, which is, you know, this is the elite. This is the club in Rochester. Yeah. But it, but it, on day one, it wasn't right. I That's mean, It, true. it had That's to earn true. its spot. So. Yeah. Yeah. How was Oak Hill actually founded? Who were the guys who said, "Hey let's start a golf course?"
1: Well there were a group of um, roughly 20 uh, business uh, business owners, uh, politicians, uh, pr- uh, other professionals that came together in uh, 1901 and decided that uh, they wanted to form a golf club. Uh, golf was a relatively new sport in uh, North America was very well known in, in Scotland and Ireland for mm-hmm. a centuries before. But in the US, it was really the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s that golf really started to take off. And in fact, the first golf course in this area was uh, the Country Club of Rochester, which was founded in 1895. And a few years later, a group of gentlemen decided that they wanted to uh, have a club as well. And so they uh, leased uh, about 60 acres along the Genesee River, where the University of Rochester is today. And that area was known as Oak Hill. There was an Oak Hill farm there. And so that's how the name came about. And um, they formed their club, Uh, it was a uh, a small uh, farmhouse uh, with uh, no running water, uh, kerosene lamps. You know, you changed your clothes in the barn out back. Um, you know, it was pretty straightforward. Uh, no gambling, no cursing.
0: Uh, uh, you it was know, a gentleman's no smoking
1: club. in the dining room. No uh, smoking in the dining room,
0: which. Uh, was there any cost to join, do you know, at that yeah, time? It was. There? was.
1: It's some ridiculous number. I don't, I don't know. It was maybe $25 a year, wow. or a dollar a month, or something like yeah. that. And it, it was really, by today's standards, you go, oh my. Yeah, right. But, um, You know, and they they founded the club.
0: And uh, do you know what their average age were? were These guys in their twenties, thirties, forties. I mean,
1: you know, I really don't know. They were all established business people, so if I had to guess, I would say in their forties. Okay, you know, maybe maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, but by and large, I would say in their forties.
0: Okay, all
1: right. And uh, you know, uh, so this farmhouse became their first clubhouse, and uh, it was right on the river, so there was uh, boating. A lot of people would uh, canoe. or or sale uh, from the club Um, and everybody was having a great time and um, uh, by 1911 the decision was made to expand from nine holes of golf to 18 and they built a new very nice clubhouse at that point in time with a big porch out front and, and and you know a real clubhouse not a converted you know farmhouse um, and um, again, it was uh, they built the second nine holes of golf, and um, uh, everybody was having a great time. Um,
0: then in was there? Uh, I know that now yeah. here at Oak Hill they, yeah. they, they, and we're going to get into this, but yeah. it's really touted as a Donald Ross design course. Mm-hmm. That original course was that just no? That it's, was just some guys yeah. who said, "Hey, let's yep. put a hole here." Yep. Yeah. That,
1: yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was no. There was no design. It was you know, let's just dig a little hole here put a flower pot in there call it a hole that's right you said yeah. it was flower pots <laughs> well, early on
0: right it was... i might have
1: made that oh up okay all right <laughs> but it was basically there was no concept of the, sure the way they you know have golf holes today yeah so, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah okay okay yeah. so 1911 they find they step it up they build yep. this clubhouse yep. uh at some point though because you we're still talking about a whole mm-hmm. different location than where you yep. and i sit right here right yep. now at some point the, the gentlemen at Oak Hill are approached, or do they do the approaching?
1: No, they're approached. Okay. Um, uh, there was interest on the part of uh, 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 Mr. Todd and Rush Reeves and George Eastman to um, expand the university, move the young men away from the temptations of the city, uh, but that's really what it was, well, right? Well, yeah. Is that kind yeah. Of, well, I think that's that how was, legend goes. Yeah. I think that was part of it, yeah. sure. But um, they really wanted to uh, build out a medical and dental center. That was, uh, as well as uh, they had run out of space for the
0: university down at. Um, you know down at the on university three, avenue yeah, well, university which
1: at down it, there the it, museum Fred, yeah
0: isn't it interesting how many people in rochester don't realize or at least young people don't realize that university avenue is called that because, because of university, of university of rochester university, was yeah, there that's yeah right. that's right that's right so they they're looking to expand
1: yeah they're looking to expand and they looked at a variety of different places um they looked at the Oak Hill location they looked at some property along the uh, Rondequoit Bay, which interestingly enough, they thought was too far away for people to commute, you know, um, and uh, but it, it came down to um, Oak Hill. And uh, so between 1922 and I'm gonna say 1926, there was a process that went on where, yes, they decided that Oak Hill property is what they wanted. By the way, the, the club had since expanded to 90 acres, okay? And um, uh, that's the property they wanted, and then they needed to raise the money, and they raised it quite quickly. Uh, uh, of course, George Eastman being backing it, uh, gave it a lot of credibility. So they raised the money very quickly, and then they approached uh, the membership at Oak Hill with uh, uh, land swap. Uh, interestingly enough, um, there were Oak Hill members that weren't so sure that they wanted to do this swap. In retrospect, you say, "What are you crazy?" But, <laughs> right. but but you know, at the time, they weren't sure that they wanted to do that land swap. They had this nice new clubhouse, and they had their 18 holes, and they were right on the river, and and it was centrally located, which
0: was which was important as well. And Fred, what was here where we are? Uh, at that time what was actually on this land.
1: the location in Pittsburgh was really just uh, not only farmland, it was pretty worn-out farmland. It was uh, seen as of relatively little value. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, so the discussion went back and forth, and um, by and large, the club uh, was, uh, Oak Hill, was inclined to move, uh, partly because it was the right... um, Citizen thing to do, you know, is to is to support the university and and its expansion. Uh, but also, it was uh, very enticing because they were told instead of one golf course, you're going to have two golf courses. Instead of, you know, a no name course, you're going to have two Donald Ross courses, and we will build you this uh, very nice. Uh, English Tudor, uh, Tutor style clubhouse, uh, which they did, and, uh, uh, you know, that, that argument was convincing, and um, so it was agreed upon, and um, in 1926... Fred, the,
0: this clubhouse that we sit in yeah. today, is this very much the exact same? Have there been a lot of renovations, or are we sitting right now... In, in in what it looked like in 1926.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, by and large, yes. There there Amazing. have been some additions. Um, technology, uh, of uh, course. Yeah, technology. And yeah. Yeah. You know, originally it had large porches all the way around because uh, around the back and the sides. Uh, you know, mostly because they didn't have air conditioning back then, mm-hmm. and and it was a bit more open, uh, but essentially this is the this is the same clubhouse that's
0: going on now a hundred years old yeah wow that's cool sitting in this room and, yeah. and by the way we should mention the room we're in this is one of the most famous rooms yeah you know,
1: it's, it's it's a favorite spot for for folks to come and take a look at we're sitting in what's known as the trophy room Oak Hill was the first and I believe still the only golf uh, club in the United States to host all six men's rotating tournaments well, what are those? Those are three of them are PGA tournaments, which is the PGA Championship, which we will host again in 2023, the Ryder Cup, which we hosted in um, uh, 95, and then the Senior uh, PGA Championship, which we hosted in 19, uh, just last year, and, uh, and previously in 08. And I should say we had the PGA championship here in 1980 which uh, Jack Nicklaus won and then in 03 13 and then, and our fourth one will be in 23 so those are the three uh, PGA tournaments and then the three USGA United States Golf Association tournaments are the US Open which we hosted in 56 uh, 68 and 89 um along with the amateur, which we hosted in 1949. That was the first really significant tournament Oak Hill hosted, uh, so that was in 49, and then again in 98, and we will again host it in 27, so that's exciting. And then we hosted the 1984 Senior U.S. Open, so if we were the only club to have hosted all six of those tournaments. And we're sitting in a room that has
0: replica trophies of all six. It's, yeah. it's really, it's magical to sit in here. It's really, it's really something special. Thank you for the experience. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the story. 1926. Sure. Uh, we're, we're Now we've moved into Pittsburgh. Is Oak Hill at that time, what's the reputation? Is Does it already have a, a really strong reputation or is it still just kind of a golf course? Well,
1: I, you know, I think it was an evolution. It mm-hmm. was an evolving, um, uh, like so many things. I think um, you know, the Country Club of Rochester is was uh, was a leading club. And, uh, and was the first club. And I think they enjoyed a, uh, a, a very fine reputation. And perhaps uh, Oak Hill was uh, of, of equivalent stature. Maybe not quite yet, but perhaps. Yeah. So we're yeah. into
0: the Donald Ross era now, right? In our story where he's going to actually, you know, he comes and designs this course. He comes
1: and he walks the property and he assures the membership. Yes, this is, this is great raw material for for uh, for a golf course. And so for anyone golf. who
0: doesn't know, who is Donald Ross?
1: Well, Donald Ross is, uh, was and still is considered one of the greatest American golf uh, architects, mm-hmm. uh, golf course architects of all time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's hosted, uh, excuse me, he's uh, uh, built uh, six uh, um, Courses or modified six of the courses in, in the Rochester area. So it's, um, you know, he's built the Two Kill, he built Brook Lee, um, he's uh, influenced uh, Ronda Coit um, and built Monroe and um, um, the Country Club. So,
0: so, bringing him in here to design this course was a big deal, right? I mean, oh, I would yeah, imagine, it was, yes, yeah, 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 it was, it was like was, we're going to go get this. We're going to go get the top arch- golf architect in the country, and we're going to get him here to Pittsford, and he's going to design this course. So now, the game of golf is going to become a big part of the selling point of Oak Hill, right? Because now it's going to become a, this competitive course that's difficult. Yeah,
1: um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I really don't know uh, how the reputation. Uh, Previous uh, to coming to mm-hmm. um, the Pittsford property, uh, really was I, I can't imagine it was too great because um, you know it was um, built by.
0: Just, just some guys. Just yeah. some guys yeah. with, a, yeah.
1: with with shovels and yeah. you know yeah. and flower pots. Yeah, you know? they, they ran
0: and grabbed some sand and threw it in a little hole and said, "There, uh, we have a trap." More or less. Yeah. More or less. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, so where's the breaking point? Would you say? Because I think you mentioned it was 1949. The amateur was here. Yes. So how do we get to? Let's get to the point where Oak Hill emerges on sort of a national stage.
1: Okay. So, um, I in my mind. The first opportunity that the world, the golfing world, had to see Oak Hill and uh, to recognize it as something special was in 1934. 1934 was the centennial of Rochester's incorporation, and it was also the 20 year anniversary of Walter Hagen's first U.S. Open win. Uh, And so the tournament was called the Hagen Centennial. And uh, this is now 20 years in. Walter Hagen is is world renowned as one as the finest golfer, the finest professional golfer. Um, you gotta make an argument for Bobby Jones there as an amateur, but uh, and not a tough one to make either. <laughs> but um, you know, and so he, there, this tournament was was hosted at Oak Hill and. Um, Walter Hagen basically invited all his golfing buddies and said, hey, we're having this tournament and I'd love to have you come here. And, and um, some, you know, some very, all of the great golfers who were you know, uh, of that era came and, and played here. And I think that was the first time people went, wow, this is, you know, this is pretty nice, this is sort of special. Um, you know, things didn't move quite so quickly back then. Uh, But in uh, 1941, which would be seven years later, uh, Frank Gannett, who was a member at Oak Hill and obviously the publishing newspaper uh, company, um, sponsored what was known as the Times Union Open. Uh, Times Union, for those who don't know, was the afternoon newspaper in Rochester forever and ever. And uh, so in 1941, uh, it was the uh, Times Union Open, which was won by Sam Sneed. and uh, and then and then the next year, '42, uh, they almost didn't have it because of the war. There was so, some concern that, you know, it's not proper to be going out and having a sporting event and enjoying yourself when men are dying, you know, in in, sure. in a war. Right. Uh, but um, you know, people realize, wait a second, you know, uh, to a certain extent, it's important. That we mm-hmm. keep, you know, our normal lives going as much as we can. So anyway, in 1942, um, the Times Union Open was hosted again. This time, uh, Ben Hogan won, and in the process, set the course record of um, 64, which uh, lasted for 71 years, wow. I believe. You know, I mean, you think about sports record 71 years is That's a long time. Yeah. It was tied by Curtis Strange in 1989 in the US Open, but it wasn't uh, It wasn't until uh, uh, Jason Duffner in uh, 2013 shot a 63. And some, some would make the argument that the course was set up uh, on the easier side by the PGA and uh, because um, they control the setup of the course, as well as um, we had had rain, so the the greens were soft and holding. So it was um, um, what do I want to say? The stars aligned for, uh, for and that's Dufner. not and that's not taken away from Duff. Oh, he's a great not golfer, great of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but But but, but uh, the it stars helped. aligned. It yeah. helped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so that was. Um, Um, So, uh, 41 and 42 were uh, the Times Union Open. And then in um, 1949, uh, Oak Hill hosted the United States Men's Amateur. And people today, the amateur today is kind of a, not viewed as perhaps a major tournament, but in 1949, it was very much a major tournament. People, need to remember that when Bobby Jones uh, won the four majors in a single year, the Grand Slam, uh, it was the British Open, US Open, the British Amateur, and mm-hmm. the US Amateur. Those were the four tournaments that were considered the really big tournaments of that era. So to host the US Amateur in 49 was was really special. That's kind of, you know, that's saying, hey, we're here, and, and, and uh, we're important, and it was a, uh, you know, Charlie Coe won. Uh, he was one of the great uh, amateur golfers of all time. I think he still ho- holds the record for low amateur at Augusta. I mean, he's, I, I don't know, half a dozen times he was low amateur, he came within a stroke of winning the, the, uh, 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 the Masters one year. So um, Charlie Coe was, was the winner and um, uh, that really set uh,
0: Oak Hill off on a path. So it was really that 15-year period, from 1934, when Walter Hagen mm-hmm. has his golf buddies here, yeah. all the way to 1949. You host that amateur right. event. That's now now Oak Hill's on the map. 1949, yeah. it's official. We're it, here.
1: It, it is official. Yeah. because this is this is a major tournament. Yeah, and you know, and one of the major governing bodies of golf has said, "Hey, we want to host our tournament at your location." Mm-hmm. So that, that that was big. That and was now you guys big. are just off to the races after 1949, right? Yeah, I mean. it, it there were some fits and starts Um, the 49 and I think I think the USGA was uh, frankly wowed I mean uh, uh, well there's one uh, quote um, I believe it was uh, um, I believe it was Joe Dye I'm not I'm not sure who said uh, where have you been all these years you know (laughs) I mean it's just it it was just recognized as a special course and um, so um, that's that's 49, and then uh, we were asked to host the 56 uh, U.S. Open, which you know that that puts the gold seal on everything. And uh, so we hosted the 1956 U.S. Open, uh, won by uh, Dr. Middlecoff. Um and it was a, a a glorious finish. He, you know, um, it was. Uh, it, <clears throat> Middlecoff is is um, maybe not a household name today, but at the time he was a uh, a, a major um, uh, golfer, and um, um, Walt uh, Ben Hogan was here again. Um, in '56, looking for his fifth
0: U.S. Open, it didn't happen. But uh, yeah. can we talk about the actual course for a second? The sure. uh, the original Donald Ross design. Yeah. Then I think at some point, and maybe I'm skipping ahead in the story. Forgive me if I am. Mm-hmm. There's a slight alteration made somewhere, right?
1: Well, there's I, slight. I think it's a little bit
0: more than slight. Well, you're right. You told me yeah. some of the members really, sure. really we didn't like it. Happy right? with it? Was, it. Yeah.
1: yeah. So there, there are two courses at Oak Hill, and the, there's the West Course. Which is not the quote-unquote championship course. Now, keep in mind, 1926, there was not a, no such thing as a championship course. Yeah, but uh, and um, but it it is. I think. A little more user friendly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The fairways are a little wider, uh, um, but it's 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 every bit a handful. Uh, you know, the, the greens are very very subtle and is it, is it
0: fair? Do you think to say it's the second best course in Rochester? I would say that.
1: I yeah. think there
0: are there are folks
1: who would disagree, but I I think if it wasn't for the East Course, the West Course would be seen as the right the best or the the finest. Most challenging course in in the Rochester area, so um,
0: anyway, um, that that, tweak that we were talking about it was well
1: the West course just to finish up on that 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 is other than one change that is still totally original Donald Ross, the East course, however, um, was has been modified a few times, and uh, the primary one. was following the 1968 US Open. So uh, kind of following along. We had the 56, uh, Dr. Middlecoff won. Uh, Then we host another US Open in 1968 and it's Lee Trevino who wins. And uh, that win was the first time uh, a, 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 a US Open was won by somebody who had was under 70, under par on all four rounds. It was also following the Dutch Elm disease, which had taken out a lot of trees that were integral to, to the course. Um, there were some other issues where uh, the USGA was starting to question whether or not the uh, East course was really up to U.S. Open quality. Yeah. You know I mean, is it really tough enough? You know, gee, somebody had four rounds under under par on a, on a U.S. Open course. I oh, don't know, wow. you know. And so anyway, um, so the club had asked to have another U.S. Open um, uh, in the late 70s, and uh, mid to late 70s, and um, they were turned down. Uh, So the powers to be came together and said, well, we need to toughen this up a little bit. So um, George Fazio was one of the better-known golf architects at the time, and uh, he was brought in to quote-unquote toughen up the, uh, the, um, um, the east course. Um, there were all, there was also some issues with, there were a couple places where there were, I'm gonna call it choke points with the crowd versus the players where things just didn't flow very well. So um, Fazio comes in and takes what was then the number five hole uh, which was considered really one of the finest golf holes, not only in at Oak Hill or in Rochester, but nationally. Just a beautiful uh, long par four with the stream with the Allen's Creek all the way down the right-hand side, and he shortened that up a little bit, and moved the green uh, in order to allow for a par three to go in, which is which was the number uh, number six. Uh, and he also went up to 15, which was, um, you know, it was, um, uh, not a hole that, was, that worked real well, let's just say that. And he moved the green down, put the pond next to it. Um, bottom line, it worked in the sense that it toughened the course up and it worked that we had good uh, spectator flow Um, And I, and people say, well, how do you know it worked? And the thing I always say is that following that uh, restoration and beginning in 1980, Oak Hill has hosted some form of significant or major tournament every five, roughly every five years since. And you can go right through, um, but, So those changes were made, and at other times there were other changes that were made as well, Um, you know,
0: but, uh, that was uh, that was a big one right there. Th- that was the and, big and, and one, and somewhat right there. controversial, like you said, with the members. But it, it worked; was, yeah. it did its job. Well, so at know, the time, maybe Fazio wasn't yeah. a popular name around here, but today, a lot of people will say, "Hey, that was the right move." You,
1: you, you got to ask yourself what was the goal, mm-hmm. and, and if the goal was to host major tournaments, it was a huge success. Mm-hmm. If the goal is to host major tournaments and have a uh, what a, a golf architecture. Afficiando would say is a, is a true Donald Ross course, eh, it wasn't so mm. much of a success. Um, and now, just recently, last year, um, we went through a major uh, restoration of both the greens and all the bunkers on the east course. And uh, as part of that process, we uh, put uh, a, uh, number five is now a par three uh and number six is back to that long you know 440 yard I believe par four with water all the way down uh
0: one one side um and um I think one of the big um, bright spots of 2020 was you guys unveiling this you know new yeah, the, wow. the, the renovation yeah that, that has to be the idea you know taking this club taking yeah. Oak Hill it's east course the most famous course in anywhere within a, a certain radius. Sure. And deciding to make some changes to it had to have been a big topic around here for a while, right? It was. A How big does topic. something like that actually come to be and happen?
1: Well, <clears throat> restoration of the greens and bunkers uh, was a given. It had been postponed for a long time and it needed to happen. Um, if you look at pictures of the way the course used to lay out, the greens, over time they had changed a lot somebody hitting out of a sand bunker, you know, day after day, month after month, the sand begins to build up on the course, and imperceptibly, but nonetheless, um, the shape of the green changes, and, um, and that limits where they can put holes. Uh, it makes it more difficult to maintain the course, because you, all of a sudden you have this thick bed of sand, that the grass is growing on. So um, those things all uh, needed, that, that all needed to change. Um, and when we were looking at that, and then the suggestion was made, well, if we're doing all of this and we have all the construction equipment and the people here and everything else, why don't we think about uh, going back to a closer to Donald Ross course? Truthfully, I'm not a golf architect t- enough uh, person to to have appreciated the fact that three of the holes really weren't Donald Ross holes. Uh, they didn't look like Donald Ross. Uh, but you know, folks who uh, are, are really good at that stuff knew it, and they said, "Hey, let's go back. Let's 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 correct some of these changes that Fazio did."
0: Back in the late '70s, and uh, so um, and Fred, I, I know that uh, I know that you're not necessarily a golf architect yeah, expert, yeah. and and I don't want to put you in a tough spot yeah. by asking this, but what what is a Donald Ross look? And and you know, again, I. I was going to say, I don't know either. I'm not a golf yeah, architect yeah. guy either. I don't know exactly. I'm sure it's Googleable, but I'm assuming somebody who really knows the game can look at something yeah, somebody, and just say. I, I,
1: you know, there yeah. there is a subset of golfers who uh, really get into the architecture of the course. I do know that there, for example, on 15, um, Ross would not have put a pond next to a green. Okay? So that was very non mm-hmm. ross like. And so that was one of the reasons why that that green was uh, that, Yeah, I that, that, that
0: just it must it's interesting to me because of how protected this this course is that mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that, you know, that that it happened that everyone kind of came together and said, "Hey, you know what? Yeah, we're going to make some changes. Let's make some changes here." Well, what I was mean, the vote? Was there a vote yeah, at the end of well, the day?
1: Well, you know, we went out and and got uh, Andrew Green a very fine uh, young golf architect, and uh, he worked with Jeff Sluman, uh, you know, who's a member here, but yeah. also, uh, you know, a major championship winner and, and a great professional golfer. Um, and um, so they went through and built out the design, and then there were a, a series of town hall meetings where the membership came together and. Saw what the plans were and had lots of opportunities to ask questions and so on and so forth. There was a vote. Uh, a, a strong percentage of the membership voted, and it was um, it was a very positive vote. It was not a mm. squeaker. It was it was a Great. good positive vote. Yeah. I will say that as we went started the process and trees a lot of trees were coming down i think some folks had second thoughts you know it didn't look it, you know when you're ripping out trees and um there's a period of time where things Doesn't don't look, things yeah. don't look good yeah okay <laughs> uh but as as the as the new greens uh and uh, holes were built um, people saw it and uh, I, I think it's almost universally now yeah. uh,
0: people feel that, that hey it was the right thing to do yeah and, I was yeah. lucky enough to be out there a few weeks ago yeah. and it's it's beautiful and it really opened up with the trees gone yeah. there's times where you look around and you just and you just feel like you're in Gulf heaven yeah you know it's it's incredible
1: well and there's some vistas that we just didn't have before I had some folks up here there. Their grandfather was an honorary member, and so sometimes, as historian, I get to give people the "quote unquote" history tour or historians' tour. And we walked out on the end of the Hill of Fame, and we were standing out there, and the vista that you can see from there, uh, from one and thirteen, and all the way over to, you know, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, is just gorgeous you know just go and, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't have seen it before so um, we're coming
0: around we're coming yeah around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, back to the kind of the history 1980 sure. uh, Nicholas wins here he did all, all, all the way into modern times I mean you had every big golf, any famous golfer anyone anyone's ever heard of has golfed at Oak Hill oh and then some yeah, yeah.
1: so 1980 was well 1980 was the first time the uh, the golfing world came to see the now quote-unquote Fazio revised uh, golf course and again the question was will, will it how tough will it play well um, uh, uh, Nicholas was the only player out of the entire field to be under par after four mm-hmm. rounds so I mean there was no question that all of a sudden the course is Plenty tough for the professionals, you know. Nicholas was the only one uh, under par. And so that was 1980, uh, and then in 1984, the USGA came to us and said, hey, we're in a little bit of a jam. Uh, we we're, we have this new tournament called the Senior US Open. It was only four or five years old at the time, and we had planned to host it somewhere else, and there, for whatever reason, can't host it, and we're in a little bit of a jam, would you would you host the 84 uh, senior us open and and we gladly said sure you know and they and you know there's an understanding that there's there that the tournaments are not tied together but nonetheless you know we demonstrated that we can host a major tournament very smoothly very well which which is important to the golfing world Um, And uh, we had done them a big favor, and so it was um, the USGA, that is. And so um, in 1989, um, the US Open uh, was awarded to us. And so in 1989, uh, Curtis Strange uh, won, uh, tying uh, Hogan's record of 64. Um, And uh, he was the last player uh, strange was the last player since Hogan to have back-to-back US open wins uh, so that was 89 and um, you know then in um, uh, 95 we hosted the Ryder Cup which for anybody who was in Rochester anybody who loves golf that's that, that's the ultimate uh, tournament it's just it has this international flavor The players are playing as a team, not as for themselves. Uh, And there's just this wonderful spirit of of enjoying golf and and, uh, rooting for your country as opposed to a particular golfer. That was 95. And uh, the Europeans won, uh, which was a bit of an upset. But in some respects, it was an important thing to have happened because the, um, the Ryder Cup was getting a little tired with the Americans winning all the time. We had to give them one, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then after that, they, they took a few more, but, <laughs> but uh, that, that was 95. It was a great, just a great event. Um, I remember I was in, uh, in a tent, and they had these big TVs around, and, and, and the commentator is showing the, uh, the uh, what is it, the SST, the uh, Concorde, Flying around, he says, and now you know uh, the Concorde is circling Oak Hill, and I'm watching the TV. I go, wow, isn't that cool? And all of a sudden, I said, wait a minute, I'm at Oak Hill, (laughs) and I ran out the door to watch the Concorde. You know, circle the uh, circle the the golf course. It was wonderful. (laughs) Um, That's 95, Uh, 98. We hosted the uh, U.S. Amateur, and um, won by Hank Keeney. uh, the Kucher Sergio Garcia match was like the big match, you know, but uh, uh, there were other s- strong matches as well and uh, great fun. That was in uh, 98. And then in 03, we hosted the uh, PGA Championship, which, uh, you know, uh, Sean McKeel won with that fabulous shot into 18 on the, on the last day to. You know, from 175 yards out to two inches, and we have a plaque uh, on the 18th fairway on the left side, 175 yards out, where where he hit from. And I always, when I have a guest playing, we always stop at the uh, at that plaque, and you know, hey, just put a ball
0: down and take a seven iron and see what you can do. You know, and. Uh, Fred, when you watch the professionals on TV play the course that you play all the time, is it ever humbling to watch them make shots that you couldn't make in a million years?
1: Uh, well, it, it, and it doesn't have to be
0: just here. It's humbling, period. Yeah, yeah. true, true. But yeah. when it's the exact hole, when you go, yeah, I played that well, hole last I Wednesday, yep, and yep. I didn't make that no, shot. That's,
1: that, that, no, it's it's very true. It's very true, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know how tricky those greens are, and it just it, I marvel at how well those guys play. Right, you and, watch them, and then you and, go,
0: well, why isn't it so tricky for them?
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> seems, you, you know.
0: They know something I don't know.
1: Well, they also do it all day That's long, true. and they That's hit true. you know 300 balls and make yeah. 150 putts every day. That's and, right. You know That's that kind right. of you know. I don't, I don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So that was '03, and then um, then '08, Jay Haas uh, won the uh, uh, Senior uh, PGA Championship. Got a little redemption uh, in that. Uh, you know he. Uh, uh, had a real nice, crushed a real nice drive on 18 after uh, having um, uh, not done so well uh, in his match in the Ryder Cup. You know, he he uh, he'll tell you he he you know he 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 has nightmares about the uh, how he finished the Ryder Cup. His match was a vital one, and on 18 he had a terrible drive into the into the rough, and uh, but came back and and. Oh uh, eight, redeemed himself and then uh, then 13 was a uh, PGA with Duffner 18 was uh um, uh the uh, another uh, senior uh PGA champion 1819 excuse me was the uh
0: was the uh senior PGA that was a lot of fun PGA. I was here I like yeah. the the integration with KitchenAid was a lot of fun for me too yeah. they had that like cooking demos going yeah. out out yeah. in the parking lot that they was awesome. yeah. that was the driving range right where they had that whole that's thing exactly set up. where it is that yeah. was really cool to see that yeah. as well yeah. wow. and so what's 2023 is next right 23 is next that'll be a PGA Championship when do you actually start to prepare around here for 2023 well the, that's a long prep isn't it
1: Yeah it is I mean in, in subtly in the background things are going on now I mean you know people are you know putting the committees together the major committees And then, uh, you know, they'll start to fill those committees. And, you know, uh, I would guess, and I don't know, so this is just me, but Mm -hmm. I I would guess the PGA will send its people in uh, here typically two years in advance. So I would think next year uh, a team from the PGA will come and and basically move into the club Mm -hmm. and have office space here and uh, begin the process of you know, doing all the things that they do, organizing the committees,
0: you know, working with the uh, community and, uh, you know. Mm -hmm selling chalets how long before a tournament like pga or some of these major tournaments how long prior to that do you guys have to stay off the course is it a two-week period or even longer it's it's
1: it's 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 sort of a gradual thing so maybe two weeks out you no longer can have guests one week out you no longer have carts and Mm. and um, you know Something along those lines. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Typically, uh, the members are off the course uh, uh, roughly a week uh,
0: before. okay? Okay. Interesting, and mm-hmm. I know I know you've got somewhere to go, and as I mentioned, no, I've got a kettle down in place. So let's yeah. let me just end it with this. Something else I think is so interesting is yeah. uh, Oak Hill is, of course, as we've said a million times, it's the premier, it's the elite club in Rochester. Yeah. Sometimes I think there's a mystique that people find so interesting about this place. Some of us regular folk, Fred, find interesting becoming a member at Oak Hill. There's really? a there's a it's not you don't just walk in and sign up. It's not like that. There's a whole um, process, right? It's a process. It's a and very careful process. You know,
1: and it, that's true. That's, I mean, I think that's true of of
0: really all of the private clubs in the area, that there is a process. Um, well, can I say, and, and you don't have to uh, yeah. comment, it seems like Oak Hill, CCR, it seems like you guys are kind of the... Well, and I would put Monroe in that. In sure, that, in there's that a handful. As well. but yep. Then there's kind of like this this like middle group that's really looking for members right now. It seems like well. I, I know I can tell you in my Facebook feed I get you know those. <laughs> I'm not going to say any of the names of the clubs, but I get those. Hey, 50 percent off right now, and yeah. you know I don't think Oak Hill's doing 50 percent off.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> um, you know uh, it, it's a series of uh, you, you know. You need to be recommended, and there's a series of interviews that people go through. I mean, it's a friendly process, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, but it's it's one of the functions of the board is to is to be a little bit of a gatekeeper, um, and um, that's you know. Uh, but um, we try to have a broad and diverse membership, um, all all sorts of fun people who love golf, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I wouldn't say we're dramatically different than CCR, Monroe, or for that matter, a, a number of the other clubs in, in, in the area, but it's a, it's a, you know, you need to be recommended by uh, a member, and then you need some additional uh, members to also sign off, and then it's a series of, of interviews, uh, just to, you know.
0: Do you do, 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 do sort of like a panel, you have to go in front of the board and or you said there's a lunch that's right yeah we'll have a lunch or a breakfast it's it's really just a process of
1: getting to know the person and letting the person you know understand more details about the club you know what's you know there's a lot that you don't necessarily see from the outside that you know somebody should should know and Mm -hmm. should understand before uh before they make that commitment it's a it's a significant commitment um you know so mm-hmm. um, you know we're not an equity course in the sense that you don't get your money back if you
0: change your mind you know <laughs> yeah uh um, yeah. but um, and there's a when we don't have to disclose it but there's obviously a financial component as well oh,
1: as there sure. is every place sure, i mean that's sure. what that's what golf courses uh, you know that's it's 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 not an inexpensive proposition mm-hmm. to maintain mm-hmm. 36 holes of golf in
0: championship at uh, championship level and how so, many guys do you have out there at any given time just doing the landscaping of this place? You price? know,
1: you'd have to ask uh, Jeff Corcoran, our, our our superintendent, on that. But if I had to guess, well, when the courses were, when we weren't playing the East and during the pandemic when there was very little going on, I believe we had 30, 35 people maintaining the two courses, and if I had to guess, that number is well above 100 uh,
0: during the prime season when of course it's being played and what and, about like middle of the winter when nobody can golf i mean are there still guys who have to go out there every oh, day and sure. do something well yeah i
1: mean there's yeah. things uh, you know that's a great time to you know do all the things that you would do in the winter yourself i mean it's the the, the you know the projects at home that you make that long list and you say well when winter comes i'm gonna fix that mower i'm mm-hmm. gonna do this i'm gonna paint that uh Same you know whatever whatever and and yeah. uh, so there's yeah
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, we've talked about some of the famous golfers who have golfed here. Yep. What about just celebrities who have golfed here? Not necessarily famous golfers, but I worked in radio for 15 years, and we interviewed every celebrity who came through town, and you know, one out of every handful was always looking for to golf while they sure, were here. Sure. And I would imagine there's a certain caliber of celebrity that you guys would welcome on the course yes. if they wanted to. Are you, I don't know if you're able to talk about it or not, but what are some of the celebrities you guys have had? I know you've got some of the, the stuff here in the clubhouse yeah, on um, display. Yeah
1: you know one thing I I wouldn't know what it is to be a celebrity but from my <laughs> well, right, from what what I hear from what I hear uh, you know they really value their privacy and yeah. so uh, typically uh, someone will approach the golf shop and and say you know that so- and-so would like to play whether it's a uh, including a blowfish or somebody you know what i mean yeah, it's, it's yeah. all you know there there's there's uh, a lot of entertainers uh and and well-known politicians that will happen to be in town who will say hey can i get out on the course mm-hmm. and, and uh but it, that's really kept um, of course private sure it, it's yeah. very quiet and very private yeah. so that the members frequently don't even know mm. that you know that that
0: so and so's is here or you're here after the fact you know who takes them out usually is it one of the, well, the they, senior members or? well
1: there's a there's also what's known as an unaccompanied rate so so you, you can go out unaccompanied it's not something that's advertised but it's you know it, it is available in certain circumstances and it's you know fairly mm-hmm. expensive but mm-hmm. yeah yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, Fred, thank you so much for spending this much sure, time. This sure. was really great talking yeah. to you. Yeah. I'm well, glad thanks. to have gotten thank to know you over the last yeah, couple of weeks.
1: Yeah. Well, it was fun. Yeah. And I, and you, and I look forward to trying some of the sauces that <laughs> yeah. you were kind that's enough to <laughs> share with me. If I tried to yeah. buy everyone off with yeah. pasta yeah. sauce, well, that's I, my, well, my... Well, you know, I'll let my, you know. That's my go-to. Uh, yeah, good. I hope this is um, covers what you were... Yeah.
0: Oh, well, Yeah, definitely. What did you shoot last time you were out here? Uh, I, you know, I'm
1: <laughs> one of my big regrets is that I did not uh, learn to play golf as a youngster. I didn't learn to play golf until I was middle aged, and I think uh, I am, um, you know, uh, have a lot of different interests, and so I will always be a bogey golfer. However, the um, member member was last week, and I had. Um, I birdied three. Nice. Oh, well, I, I birdied a, a, a two, mm-hmm. two par threes on on Saturday, which uh, won a skin and and, and birdied another par three on uh, Friday, which won a skin, so it was a, although the score isn't exactly what I'd want to advertise, uh, you know, I, I made a couple of really nice putts, so yeah, I, that's what you go home,
0: oh, yeah. it gives you enough to go home smiling, Yeah, you know. Well, I'm yeah. a terrible golfer, but I'm always good for one or two good holes, yep. and those one or two good holes get me back here next time, every single time. And that's me, <laughs> I, you know,
1: I can play very well for or five holes and then blow up for three or four holes
0: and mm-hmm. you know it always mm-hmm. comes out bogey golf well so. I know I said that was gonna be the last question this is actually the last question okay I know you are a collector and yeah. and, and a lot of your collection has made its way into some of these cases here yeah. but you also have a personal collection of golf memorabilia yeah what is the single coolest piece of golf memorabilia that either you own or Oak Hill owns or Wow well, Oak Hill
1: has some great stuff so I became the historian because uh, someone heard that I was uh, interested in antique golf clubs, which I am, and uh, I had put together a, a, a collection, and the club had quite a few golf clubs, some antique, and they didn't really know what they had, so I, you know, they said, hey, would you inventory this, would you become sort of a uh, antique golf equipment kind of person, and I said, sure. Um, let me think for a minute about the coolest thing that the club has. Uh, in my own collection there are two. I, I, uh, <laughs> both are woods, although I really specialize in irons from about 1885 to 1930. But um, uh, I have what's known as a one piece. It's a brassy, uh, which is like a th- three wood, uh, made from a single piece of wood. It's, it's, it's steamed and shaped. And so you know, there's no shaft and hosel into the head. It's a single piece of 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 wood Um, that was right from about the turn of the century. What's remarkable remarkable about those is that they're very rare because when you break one, there's no fixing it. It's it's done. You know, whereas with wood shafted club, if you break the shaft, you know you can you can. Mm -hmm. Drill out the head, put a new shaft in, and away you go. You know, Um, so uh, that uh, this is a a John Dunn one piece, which is uh, pretty rare. And then I have a uh, uh, a all original beachhead driver made by Tom, old Tom Morris. And by the way, by the way, the logo is on the top of the of the, uh, the head. Uh, I, I can identify it as having been made at his shop when he was at his shop. People don't realize, and this is how I really got into collecting this stuff, is that the markings on golf clubs, on old golf clubs, are very much like hallmarks on on silver. That if you know how to read them, you can know who made it, when it was made, where it wow. was made, so on and so forth. and. You know, I started out thinking, oh, I'll collect all the, uh, they're called clique marks. I'll collect an example of every one, only to later find out that there are thousands of them. So that never happened. But you know, at one point in time, I'm slowly selling stuff off. I had maybe 400, 450 antique wood shafted golf clubs. And we used to host a, uh, 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 we called it the Heritage Classic, where everybody would dress up and uh, Plus fours and a little tie and and sports jacket and uh, play with pre 1930 wood shaft. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a cool yeah. event. That was a lot of fun. Well, I know
0: fun. you've got that one ball. The original golf ball was leather and feathers, right? I know you showed. I we, found that to be yeah, very interesting. We
1: have a golf ball display, uh, which really shows the four eras of golf uh, golf balls. And I I make the argument that if you want to understand the history of golf, you have to understand the history of the golf ball, because uh, the, you're talking about what's known as a feathery. It's, a, it's a, a two pieces, three pieces of leather, um, and uh, it's uh, the, the leather is wet, uh, and then it is stuffed with wet feathers, I mean really stuffed, and then sewn up. And then when leather dries, it shrinks, and when feathers dry, they spread, so they're remarkably hard. Um, And those were um, really uh, the um, golf ball of choice up until roughly, I'm gonna say 1850. Uh, But what's critical about that is to a... um, um, it took a skilled craftsman all day to make two or three of these leather golf balls. Leather in wet grass does not last real long, so you had to be fairly wealthy to be able to employ somebody to make a golf ball that you're going to beat to pieces in a couple of days. So it was very, it was very. Uh, it, that's what made golf exclusive. Also, to hit a feather ball, you don't want an iron, you want a, a gentle wood club. So, the ergonomics of the swing was different. The nature of the equipment was different. Who could afford to play was different. Uh, in 1850, the gutta percha ball came along, and um, an unskilled craftsman could make two or three dozen in a day. So, all of a sudden, now there wasn't that financial barrier to to, uh to playing golf because they, they were relatively cheap and they lasted a long time but you you needed an iron you know it mm-hmm. t- required a a, a uh, an iron to hit because these are you don't got a perch your ball it's really a rock I mean mm-hmm. it's a it's a you know I mean it's hard as a rock and uh, and so it would uh, you know quickly damage the more uh, delicate clubs used with feather balls and then from the solid gutta percha, we went to the wound golf balls and people my era uh, age group uh, know that when as a kid you took a golf ball apart it was uh, like five miles of rubber bands inside and then there was a little center and that's those were wound balls and um, they were called bounding billies because they would go Phew. You know they really flew, but you never knew where. You know, um, and the wound ball was really it was it was improved upon and improved upon and really played by the professionals uh, right into uh, the early uh, you know uh, uh, 2000s. And it wasn't until the Pro V came along. You know, the Titleist Pro V mm-hmm. with the uh, with the softer outside and the harder uh, inside that that it gave a, a golf. Uh, you know re- uh, that sense of being able to get distance while at the same time have feel and uh, so those are the four eras the feather ball the gutta percha the wound ball and now back to the one piece uh, balls that we have um, we have golf clubs from a number of presidents we have golf clubs from uh, a number of uh, personalities. Um, there was a gentleman, he wasn't the historian, but there was a gentleman who had a golf display here. Um, and he was well known, he was a good golfer, and he was kind of well known in those circles. And when someone of note would come to Rochester and, and play Hill, he would ask for a, a club from the bag. So we have a extensive collection of, of golf clubs that are not of great value in and of themselves but they are because of who gave them mm-hmm. to us i mean you know uh Bing crosby jackie gleason gerald ford uh donald ross um you go on and on and on i mean you 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 almost can't name a top player wow. who hasn't who who hasn't given a club to to oak hill and and so that's that's pretty special um we uh, just acquired uh, the flag that flew over the sixth hole in 1989 for the four aces when there were within an hour and a half. There were four holes in one, which was, is just an incredible feat. Um, it's and, more improbable than winning the lottery, right, I would think. Oh, it, 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 yeah. the odds are higher to have four holes in one on the
0: same hole
1: within an hour and a half yeah. of each other. Uh, is just better chance of
0: getting struck by lightning. Better chance of winning e- the lottery. E- yeah.
1: Better chance of winning the lottery and then immediately being struck by lightning. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> right. it's yeah. Um, um, so, um, and, you know, that's that's uh, that's a significant. I mean, we've got a lot of. Damn, uh, really uh, we have uh, the, the wedge that uh, Jeff Sluman used in winning the 1988 PGA Championship. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, trying to pick out a favorite, uh, piece of
0: um, what about what's the one you want what's the one that you got your eye on that you don't own right now but you're looking at it and for the right price you pull the trigger
1: well you know I'm trying to I'm trying to back off on that back off on that my, my wife is encouraging me to you know sell deal not buy. With these things yeah. while you're here you know? uh, uh-huh. oh yeah she's going I don't want to be left with all these clubs. exactly yeah. exactly uh yeah. but there are uh I'll tell you something I don't have that the club does have uh, that I, is is really a lot of fun. It's called a, a it's called a tea mold M O L D T mold. And uh, before people used the wooden tees or the plastic tees that we're used to today, um, they had a, a number of different ways of teeing golf balls up. One is to just kick up a little bit of dirt. And then balance the ball on that piece of dirt, uh, and then there were other ones, uh, little props that they would sit on. But probably the most interesting is 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 a t-mold, and it looks like it looks like a little tiny funnel with a plunger on the narrow end. Okay and this is where the term tea box comes from because uh, uh, at each tea there would be a box of sand and, and a, a little container of water and you take some water and you mix it in with the sand and you would you know make a little uh, a little pyramid well the tea mold you just pack it in that mold you turn it upside down hit the plunger and it would make a perfect little uh, like cool. a, a cone that, and with the shape for the golf ball to sit on, and that's and that that's a team mold, and team molds are, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're they're very collectible. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Fred, thanks so much for doing yeah, this. Was, was a great hour, it was man. Fun. Thank you. you. Bet. you yeah, bet. I'll see you again sometime. Hopefully okay. soon. Enjoy okay. that sauce.
1: Thank you very much. <laughs>